0: And as you do, open your Bibles again to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. You know, it was five weeks ago when I first announced that I was going to be preaching a four-week marriage series. And at the moment that I made that announcement, I can almost guarantee you that there were a slew of different emotions being experienced at that very moment. Matter of fact, I believe that some of them, some of you begin to feel maybe a sense of excitement. Uh, Perhaps you're excited about where your marriage is and where it's headed right now. There's some who perhaps are uh, thinking about getting married and excited about all that it has to possibly hold for them. Uh, There were others that responded with a feeling of joy. And that is for some of you that have been uh, married for quite some time. You know, you've been able to weather the storm. You've gone through a lot of those difficulties. And now you're really in in a place of real joy where you're really enjoying your spouse like you've never done before. You know, there are others that really responded with some hope, and that is that as many of us, none of us have a perfect marriage. It all needs uh, to be better and more Christ-like within that marriage, And, and some have hope because maybe some things are not quite right, and maybe there's some fractures within that marriage, or maybe there's quite a few things that are not going right, and your hope is this. Your hope is that maybe through this particular series of hearing the Word of God, that maybe something will change your circumstances. Maybe something will ultimately change you, but if you're like me, what I really think is that hopefully something said will change the one I'm married to, right? right? And so you're hopeful that that transformation will occur in your spouse. You know, on the other side, on the other spectrum, though, I think there's another series of emotions that were just as strong, if not stronger, and that is that some begin to feel pain just by the very mention of marriage and just going there really just brought a feeling and some emotion of pain in their life. Because let's face it, not always all marriages are going really, really, really well. As a matter of fact, I would say very few are really uh, going well in that term. And so this part, some people have gone through so much suffering and so much difficulty and so much strife uh, that just the mention of marriage right now is something they don't even want to talk about because it's just painful to them. There's others that really feel shame, and I feel sorry for these folks. Sometimes because of the marriage that they were in, they tried so hard, but ultimately they failed. I remember talking with my brother about this and his divorce, and he often told me, he said, you know what, I just feel like an unbelievable failure. And there was a sense of shame there, of even, even though he knows he's been forgiven and reminded of that. There was a sense of shame that he carried around, so he didn't really like to talk about the subject of marriage. And still there's another emotion, I guess if you could say this, and that is some were just numb. Some were just numb. And I think of all the responses, emotional responses, that's probably the saddest response of all because what happens is this, is that sometimes marriage is so hard and so difficult and you can fight so long and you go through all the very variances of emotions, of of, of anger and bitterness and resentment and, and depression and everything else, that ultimately you just find yourself just shutting off and you just don't feel anything anymore. I find this with a lot of women, especially in counseling with them and their husbands, is that, man, guys, I'm just warning you, your wives will put up with a great deal. A great deal. It's amazing. But if you just keep going the way that you are and keep pushing those buttons and keep being uh, doing some of the things that you're doing, there will become a time that she'll try to protect herself and just kind of go numb. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, because my wife did the same thing. <laughs> While in ministry, my wife says after leaving my last church on Christmas Day... She gives me a Christmas present. I just don't love you anymore. I just don't love you anymore. And I realized that a lot of that was because of my own effect and my own sinfulness in my heart. And that's a sad place to ultimately be. But for these reasons and for many other reasons, marriage to many people is a mystery. Would you kind of agree with that? And what I mean by that is every young lady looks forward to the day of her wedding, right? Uh, What they're going to wear and how it's going to be. But I want to let you know and just let this, and this might be kinds of pansyish of me, but I will let you know that guys look forward to getting married too. All right guys? I mean, we think of, it may not be what we're wearing or whatever on, on, uh, on the wedding day, but we're excited about just getting married. We, we, we think about who we're going to marry, what they're going to look like, what they're going to be like. Uh, we all dream, men and women, dream about living these long uh, fulfilling, wonderful, joy-filled relationships. And so we take these high expectations and we come and we walk down the aisle. Does this sound familiar? And then we say these vows to each other. We're really not listening, that whole better for worse thing, whatever. And then we say, I do. And then and at least in my experience and experience of many others and me walking through other people with their marriage, what we often find is this, is that very quickly after saying I do, a lot of those hopes and dreams begin to crumble apart. And for many, many people, ultimately, marriage is a mystery because marriage promised so much but has failed to deliver. I mean, really, it, they believe that marriage has promised them happiness and joy and all these great expectations and all these hopes and dreams. But the truth of the matter is when they look at the reality of the marriage, it has not lived up to what it ultimately promised. And for that reason, they just have a hard under, uh, understanding the purpose of marriage or the reason for marriage, or how in the world that it works. It's just a mystery to them. And so what I would say, what I'd ask this morning of you is why? Why is it that way? And I believe that that happens at least, wouldn't we be honest that that happens, maybe you can't respond because the person sitting next to you, but wouldn't you at least be uh, honest to say that that happens at least to some degree in just about every marriage? That all of a sudden reality sets in, and it's not quite exactly what they had thought that it was ultimately going to be? Now, we ask why, here's my answer. We fail to understand the true mystery of marriage. We fail to understand the true mystery of marriage. See, here's what I want you to get. The Bible talks about marriage as a mystery as well. You need to get that. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that it's not only a mystery. He says it's a profound mystery. But what I want you to understand is this, is that their definition of Paul's definition of mystery and our definition of mystery is different. When we say that marriage is a mystery, what we're in sense saying is that it's something that's too complex, too deep, or too obscure for us to understand. We just can't get our arms around this whole marriage thing. You ever feel that way? And then the Bible, though, has a different definition of mystery. Now, note this very carefully. The Bible defines mystery as a previously hidden purpose of God that has now been revealed for our understanding and enjoyment. So it's not that it can't be understood. It's just that the full meaning of marriage, and that's really what we're getting at, the purpose of marriage. When we talk about the mystery, and Paul says the mystery of marriage, what we're ultimately saying is the purpose of marriage. God's ideal purpose of marriage was not understood fully in completion when it was first given to man in the garden with Adam and Eve. It was not fully understood. The full essence and significance of that marriage would not be understood until many thousands of years later with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see that. So what he's saying is it is a mystery. In other words, the true significance of marriage when first given was not fully understood. He says, but now we do understand. God has torn back the veil and demonstrated very clearly so that marriage does not have to be a profound mystery anymore. It's says because now we understand it. And so what we find is this, is that what I find more often than not is the reason for so much difficulty and so much stress and so much heartache in marriage is simply because people misunderstand the mystery of marriage. That is, they misunderstand the purpose of marriage. Most people going in, believe that marriage is about, first. Some, here's no particular order, but some believe that it's about companionship, right? Man, I'm lonely. I hate being lonely. I just want some companionship, right? And then you get married and then you're like, man, I wish I was lonely. <laughs> Boy, I wish I could, you with me, right? And so you hear people say that, and when you're on the other side, you're like, dude, that doesn't even make any sense, right? Uh, some, it's for sexual fulfillment. and And I think that's pretty pretty clear. And and, and if you don't understand this, if you've been in marriage for any period of time, you understand that this heavily is a purpose for men. Okay. You got that? All right. We'll move on. Number three, having children, having a family. Okay. Having a family. Some people just really want to have, my my wife is crazy about babies. Okay. Crazy. I, I think they're pretty cool. All right. And I think they're great. Yeah. But I like, like when they're older, when you could actually talk with them. And you're not changing their pants. Okay, that's, that's, that's my area. Okay, that's what I like to be able to do. But she just loves it. Some people think that, hey, listen, we need to get this because I desire to be in a family. Another is, is being in love. It's all about love, man. Love. Love will keep us together. Right? <laughs> Captain Antio, you guys remember that? 107.3? You're all right. And so you, you, you get that and you listen to kind of music like that. And, 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 and it's about love. They just say, you know, why are you getting married? We're in love we're in love. And what do you do? You just kind of sit there and you don't want to crush them, but you're just like, oh, you are in so much trouble, right? It's just about love and staying in love. That's what it's about. Number five, happiness. What's God's purpose for you in getting married? God wants me to be happy. You guys know not to say that to me, right? You guys know to say that to me by now? After six years, it's been six years since I've been here, right, as a pastor. Don't ever come to me and gay, go, God's purpose in my life is to be happy. Because I will crush you biblically, okay? We will not be pretty. He, he, he wants to transform you in the image and likeness of Christ. But I'm getting ahead of myself. But it's funny because let me ask you is I think that most people, they believe without even admitting it or thinking through it, that the primary purposes of marriage is probably a conglomeration of these things with love and happiness being at the top of all that. Would you agree? And I think that's how people view ultimately marriage. However, none of these demonstrate the true mystery. That is the purpose of marriage in which God is intended. So my goal today is to dig out all that junk, is to clean out all that false thinking. And this is very hard when you've been clinging to this for so many years. To get rid of this, the Holy Spirit has to do in his supernatural work to come, to tear all that stuff away, and come and bring God's divine sovereign work and his will inside of your life as it's, as it's clarified within the scriptures. So, this morning, two truths that will help us understand God's ultimate purpose of marriage. Here it is. Number one marriage is from God to his people, marriage is from God. To his people. Notice, if you will, in verse eighteen, with your Bibles, Genesis chapter two and verse eighteen. Notice what it says. He says, "Then the Lord God said." That word "then" is very important because that word "then" is what it's doing is is connecting what he's about to say and describe with what has already occurred in chapters one and the first part of chapter two. Now, stick with me. Why is that important? What happened in chapter one? What happens in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis? It's the creation's account. It's it's Moses writing about God's creation and how he set this whole thing up. So right before in the first one and a half chapters of Genesis, what God actually does is he demonstrates how he does it. He speaks ex nihilo and creates the world ex nihilo out of nothing. So there we see the creation of the world in those six days. On the seventh day he rests. He's created the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the beast of the field. Then he takes that same clay and he blows in, he blows life, and he creates man, right? Then after creating man, he sets out rules and regulations and purposes for mankind, to be fruitful, multiplied, uh, to, to, to not eat, to eat. He may eat of all the uh, trees of the garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what is He doing? He's setting everything up. Sin has not come and messed things up. This is His perfect creation. God is setting up this world to function Perfectly. And then what he says is he says, then, verse 18, this is a continuation of God's original creative act. And guess what's included in it? The institution of marriage. This was not an afterthought. This was God's functioning for mankind and purpose for mankind for the world to truly go around. So keep that in mind. That's the context. So this is from God Why? How do we know? Well, first of all, it's God's idea. Now, notice in verse 18 again, then the Lord, look what God said. It says, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, understand when you're first reading this, understand that God didn't realize here that he made a mistake. Okay, don't think that way. That's kind of how it sounds, but that's not what it means. It doesn't mean that God's sitting there, he he creates all the animals, then he creates man, and then he's just like, There, it's all done. It's all good. We're done with this creation account. And no, he sits there and then looks at, at, at Adam kind of sobbing and says, oh, wait, wait a minute, I'm going to have to add something else. That's not what's going on here. God knew from eternity's past that he would create a man and woman. God knew from eternity's past, get this, that man would fall and he would have to send his son to die on a cross. My son asked me that driving the other day. He sat there and he just asked me, he said, said, well, if, if God knew that man was going to fall and he'd have to send his son and watch his son die. He goes, why did he send his son? Why did he create the world? And the only answer I can ever give is this, for the glory of God, for the glory of God's son. That's the only answer I get. I can't give any other answer except for that it brings glory to God. And we'll understand that when we're in heaven more fully, won't we? And so what God does here is this. He creates this, and then he says to the man, it's not that he doesn't understand. What he's going to try to get across in these first couple of verses is to illuminate Adam's mind to show his need. So, show what he, so see what he does here. He says in verse 19, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living uh, creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all its livestock and the birds of heaven and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So this is what God does. Continuing, he wants to show a need for Adam. So what he does, he has all the little reptiles and all the little hippos and all the little giraffes, big giraffes, whatever. They all pass by him and he's sitting there going, giraffe, zebra, hippopotamus, whatever. And I couldn't remember him once I named them. But anyway, he does. He gets them all done. And then all of a sudden, he's going through this thing. And this is my sanctified imagination. I'm just given some kind of thought. Somehow he comes to the conclusion, hey, something's not right. There's a Mr. and Mrs. Hippo. But there's not a Mr. and Mrs. Adam, right? Something's missing here. So when he gets through all those Adams, there is a sense of incompletion in his heart. There's something that is missing with him. And what is that? That's a helper that was fit for him. He looks at them and goes, None of these are equal. So God brings this need to him and showing him these things and understanding. So understand, Adam didn't come up with the idea first. Whose idea was it first? God's idea. It was not man's idea, it was God's. Secondly, it was not only from God in the fact that it was God's idea, but it was also from God in the fact that it was God's provision. Now notice what the next scriptures say in verse 21. He says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. Now notice this, this is a supernatural act of God. And what he does is he begins to create a woman differently than all the other creations. All the other creations, according to verse 19, came from where? Out of the ground, out of the ground. Even man, out of the ground. But the woman was going to be created uniquely Beautifully. How? By God being the first, um, uh, 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 what do you call it, person that puts you to sleep. Thank you very much. That's it. Can't even say it. All right. Like I said, I, the surgery messed me up. Anyway, they put you to sleep. He puts Adam to sleep. He puts him in a deep sleep. Then, when he's under, he does the first surgery, takes out a rib. He starts with this rib, he begins to fashion this woman, and then what he does is puts her all together. Now what's interesting about this is there's something just very unique. Now why out of his side? Why a part of him? Because he wants to get across, this is his equal. Even though they will ultimately have different roles, they are different. They were equal in worth and value before a holy God. So he creates her out of that. But not only through his creation does God provide, but what he also does, he always brings her to her. Did you notice that? He says, and he brought her to the man. He brought her to the man. He created her, fashioned her, and then here he is leading her along, bringing her right to Adam. And what I love about that is Adam didn't have to go beating the bushes. You'd have to go around, you know, sitting there getting on the internet trying to find a mate, right? God, supernaturally. If you did that, that's fine. I love you. Oh, see, I shouldn't say things. I'm not saying anything's wrong. But he didn't have to do any of that. He ushered as his wonderful, gracious provision and brought this wonderful gift to his wife. And so, or to, to her, to, um, brought the wife to the husband. So she brings it to him. Now, isn't that a beautiful picture? Those who really demonstrated the tradition of marriage really knew what they did, were doing. And we've lost that that, that glory, that understanding. In it, picture, when men, do you remember? All of a sudden, dun, da 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 dun, da, 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 da da whatever it is, that music. Then all of a sudden, that back door opens up. And all of a sudden, that woman in all her glory, your wife, steps right through that thing. And what do you say? Whoa, man. woman, right? And so you look at her and you see her. And then there's this little guy that's connected to her. And they begin to walk down together, right? And who is that with her? That's the daddy. And the daddy comes and brings that child who he brought into this world, and he walks down, and he gives that little girl to her husband. And it's the same exact picture. What that was intended for was to picture exactly what God was ultimately doing, that God created her and led her to her spouse, and he brought them together. And so what we see here is that it was from God because it was God's idea. It was from God because it was God's provision. And third, it was God's provision, excuse me, it was God's design. Now, after he sits and he says, this, is, this, is, uh, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Notice verse 24. Here's where we see his design. He's going to give us what should be happening during this time. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. All right? So here's the design of marriage. This is what should happen. First of all, man should leave his father and mother. Do I need to emphasize that for anybody who still has their children in the house? All right, when they got married, right? Now, let me say, that's not exactly what the text is intending here. The text is not saying that a husband can no, and his wife can no longer live with his parents, even though I don't personally think it's a great idea. But that's good stuff, not God's stuff, right? a matter of fact, in the, old, in the Word of God, we find that women would actually leave their home, which is opposite of the day, and come and join him and his family in his household. So that's not what is being intended by leaving here. What it means is this. Leave means that marriage requires a new priority by the marital partners where obligations to one's spouse supplant a person's parental loyalties. Do you understand that? In other words, what leaving means is that this new bond becomes the preeminent relationship. This is first and foremost above all else. This relationship now, before they got married, the most important relationship was what? With mom and dad and the family. Now something unique is happening. He is leaving, which he is now setting apart this particular relationship with his spouse as the preeminent human relationship above all else. And let me stop right there. Can you imagine how many marriages in this place and across America could be radically transformed if they would just follow that truth? There are many people that I know that are married that still have a hard time cutting the umbilical cord. Their wife feels insecure ultimately most of the time because they understand that the husband still has this great affection for his parents, which is great, but he supersedes their opinions, their needs, even over his own wife, and sometimes the second. And let me turn that thing upside down. And not only applies with the parents, but listen, I think this is even more practical. It also applies with the children. I think one of the biggest mistakes that parents make they usurp the relationship of their children and they put it first and foremost over the relationship with their spouse. And it is flat out wrong. There's no other word for it. What I hear people often say is we're going to get a divorce and we're doing it for the what? The children. That's a lie. It's a lie. Let me tell you something that my son said the other day. Again, I guess we talk a lot with driving. There's nothing else to do. And he's sitting in the back, and, and out of the blue, it startled me. My son asked me, he said, Dad, he goes, he goes, if you and Mom get divorced, who do I go with? And, of course, there's a tendency to want to pull over to the side of the road because I'm thinking maybe he knows something that I do not. <laughs> <laughs> and so I asked him, I said, son, where did you get that? And I said, you know what, it doesn't matter where you got that. I said, son, took my mirror, praise God I didn't wreck, and I looked in it, and I said, you're... Father and mother will never be divorced, period. So it's not even important that you and I even discuss this question. And all of a sudden, at the moment of that, my son's countenance completely changed. Can you imagine a child trying to figure out who they're going to be passed off with? And that stress. And all of a sudden, when my son understood the security that was found within there, all of a sudden he's like, okay, everything is ultimately all right. I get this. I understand this. And so the idea there is this, is at the same time with our children, we have to be very clear to tell them, when my son talks back to, my, to, to, to his mother, I let him very clear, that is not acceptable with dad. Because that is my wife's son that you are talking with. You will not talk to her that way. And they understand very clearly that even though they, they interrupt all the time, you do not interrupt mommy and daddy. This is the time that we have to have for ourselves. But we want tough, tough. Get used to disappointment. You sit there and say, but that is so unloving. It's the most loving thing you could possibly do. Your kid may want to act like he wants to be number one, but it's his own selfish, sinful appetite for being number one in his pride. What they truly crave from the inner being is that their mom and dad are fully and completely committed and in love to one another. That's what they desire more than anything else. And so what we've got to understand is even for whether for parents or whatever, you have to leave. Second thing he says to hold fast. Many times we talked about this as cleaving. And the idea of holding fast here is to cling or to stick. And so the, the actual Hebrew word there says, it says that they, they, um, he would leave his father or mother and they would hold fast to, to one another. That word hold fast there literally means to cling and stick. It's a Hebrew word which pictures two sheets of paper being glued together. Now, if you were to take some Elmer's glue or whatever it was and take it and put it between two sheets and glue them together, let them dry, I dare you to try to go ahead and take those two things apart and have two separate sheets. They are stuck together. The only way to get those things apart is to destroy the two. They are completely gripped together. And so what is it ultimately telling You know what you need to be doing? He says you need to leave, make this marriage the preeminent human relationship. It's not above your relationship with Christ, but the preeminent human relationship. And then what you do is you hold on with every bit of power and strength that you have, and you never let go. That's the call. That's the design of marriage. Now notice there's one more thing here. There's also not only God's idea, God's provision, God's design, but also God's work. This is the most important point of the whole thing. Notice what he says here. In the next line, he says, after he says to, 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 hold, or to leave and to hold fast, he says, and they shall become one flesh. They shall become one flesh. Do you know who the primary actor and worker within the marriage and the wedding itself is? It's not the bride. And it's not the husband. You know who it is? It's God. God is doing a supernatural work when you said, I do. When you committed yourself, it wasn't just you guys making this decision. God supernaturally bound you and and wedded you together intricately like a tapestry. He took your mind, He took your body, He took your soul, He took everything, and He weaved it together. It's something supernaturally happening. It's what the world does not get, and it's what the church has denied. So that is why, listen, I hear people all the time come up and they'll say things like this. Well, Brother Mike, um, what, you know, what actually happens there? What do you mean it's a supernatural bonding? What, what do you mean we can't just get divorced and go right? I said you can't go get divorced without it completely ripping and hurting and causing unbelievable pain to yourself. And, and, and I love what Lewis Evans says. He, he describes this idea uh, this way, this one flesh. He says, "'The one flesh in marriage is not just a physical phenomenon, "'but a uniting of totality of two personalities. "'In marriage we are one flesh spiritually by vow, "'economically by sharing, "'logistically by adjusting time, "'and agreeing on the disbursement of all life's resources, "'experientially by trudging through the dark valleys "'and standing victoriously on peaks of success, "'and sexually by the bonding of the bodies.'" So this is interesting because oftentimes I'll hear people, when, once they get married, they'll come back and they'll say things like this. You know, my problem is I feel like and my parents are saying and my friends are saying that I'm not the same person, that I'm actually losing my identity. Well, right on. <laughs> that is supposed to be what happens, right? I just don't feel like an individual anymore because you're not. You're, you're, you're one with your spouse now. You know, have you ever seen people where over a long period of time, they become more and more like each other all the time? Right. Like they start to look like each other. You're like, how is that possible? Right. When she starts growing that beard, they act, no I'm just kidding. They, they, they start to look, look more alike. They begin to finish each other's sentences. Are You guys with me. Right. You're like, we're not there yet. All right. And they begin to they begin to like have this communication without words. They're just kind of like, mm-hmm. and I don't mean guys shaking your your iced tea glass. Some of you get that. That's that's not good, all right? But you just just know how to kind of finish each other. You're becoming one another. You're thinking alike. You finish each other's sentences. You go through this. That's the bonding. Listen, that's the bonding and the work of a holy God. This is what he says. He says, my call for you is to leave, to make this the preeminent relationship in your life. You are to cleave, to hold fast, to hold on to it with all of your might, to never let go. And how many of you think we can do that by ourselves? None. So God goes, I'm going to do something by my supernatural grace, and I'm going to weave your very lives together. You will not be able to see it. You're not going to walk around like Siamese twins. But I'm going to, in a very real sense, wed your very character, personality, spirits together in that sense. That's an amazing thing. It's God's work. So why is this so important? Why is it so important that we understand that God, that that marriage is from God? Let me, let me say the significance. significance is this. If marriage is from God, and it is His idea, His provision, His design, and the work for His people, then His people must adopt the same purpose for their marriage in which God had originally intended. If God has created you, gave you life, and He has given you the institution of marriage, and he's given you everything, the design and, and, and the work and everything else, to be able to put it together, then you and I, as submittive servants of a holy God, recognizing that, for us to believe or to practice that the purpose of marriage is anything else except for primarily what God said to, is completely and utterly sin. It's for me to say, I will be God of my life. So what we have to do is understanding that all this is from God, we have to humble ourselves and sit there, reject the purposes that we've said that marriage is primarily about, reject the fact that we thought that it was about happiness, reject reject the fact that we thought it was primarily about fulfillment and companionship and sexual satisfaction, and sit there and say, God, by faith, I receive through humility your purpose for me in this marriage. So what is the marriage? So what is the purpose? It still leaves us at that point. Where the first thing we saw was that marriage was from God for His people. Here's the second point. Marriage is for God and His glory. Marriage is for God and His glory. Now, I want you to look over to Ephesians chapter 5. This is where we flip. You don't have to stick your little finger in there. Isn't that nice? I've been to sermons where I had like I needed more fingers, you know, because I'm having you pass around. Ephesians, you could just close it. Ephesians chapter 5. Now, let me give you a little background. Here, Paul is writing the church of Ephesus, and he's letting them know about marriage. He's letting them know about the roles of husbands and wives and how this whole marriage thing is supposed to be able to function. And what he does, he does something very interesting. In chapter 5, in verse 31, look at it. He quotes directly from Genesis chapter 2, in verse 24. We just read this, the design of marriage. Look what he says in verse 31. In verse 31, he says, this, He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father, So there's the leave. And the mother and hold fast, there's the cleave, to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. That's exactly, he's quoting exactly from what Moses wrote back in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, right? So what he's saying here is he's saying, here's the picture. Now he interprets this picture. He's going to give us the true sense of this. Then he says, notice the next verse. This mystery is profound. This mystery is profound. Notice, here it is. Don't miss it. Here's the purpose. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He says marriage. The primary purpose of marriage is that God created marriage to publicly illustrate Christ's covenant relationship with his people. I'm just going to let it simmer just for a second. The reason back in Genesis chapter 2 that he set up marriage was so that a lost and dying world, your children, believers, friends, family, and strangers, would be able to see a physical example of what it was like for God to have a relationship with man through the new covenant through Jesus Christ. Now. That may not stick with you yet, but let me try to hash it out for you. This picture, let me show you that I'm not making this up or taking the text out of context. Let me show you where throughout the Word of God, we see this constant idea of the bridegroom being Christ and the church as his bride. Matthew chapter 9, verse 15. On one occasion, Jesus was asked by John the Baptist's disciples, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. What was he talking about? He's talking about himself. He says the reason that people aren't mourning yet, the reason that they're rejoicing is because the bridegroom is still here. I'm still here, but I'm going to die, be buried, and resurrect on the third day. And when I'm gone, then they will fast. Then they will fast. He's the bridegroom. In Matthew, excuse me, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 1, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Who's the bridegroom? Jesus. John chapter 3 verse 29. Here we see people are asking John the Baptist. He says, are you the Christ? And this is how he responds. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He goes, I'm not the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. I'm a friend of the bridegroom. He goes, the bridegroom is the one who has the bride. Who's the bride? Church. The church. The church. He's the one that has the church. That's his bride. The Bible teaches us throughout. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and verse 2, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you a pure virgin to Christ. So all of a sudden, notice this, now the design of marriage takes on an even greater significance. See, when I was teaching through that particular passage, to leave and cleave, it made a certain amount of sense to you, did it not? And becoming one flesh, did it not? Do we need to go back? All right. Yes, it does. Okay. To a certain extent, we understood it. But now that we read here, we have a much greater sense of what that was all about. We begin to understand that what was mentioned here, the leaving and the cleaving and becoming one flesh that was mentioned first in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, now is being unpacked here in Ephesians chapter 5, is that first of all, this picture is the work of Christ. It's a picture of the work of Christ. Jesus left his father. He came and he held fast to his bride, the church, and by his death, burial, and resurrection, he entered into a one flesh, or more specifically, a one spirit union with them. Now we see, now we see why this was a mystery. Those in the Old Testament could understand certain truths concerning marriage. They were unable to understand its full significance until Jesus came. Isn't that true? Even Adam, even though Adam was sitting there, he was, he was, this whole marriage thing was happening, Adam and Eve, but they didn't fully understand it. Why? First of all, it was before the fall. They had no idea that they were going to have to be redeemed. They had no idea they were going to have to have a savior, a substitute to die in their place, to redeem them from the curse of sin. They had no idea. Even after the fall, they understood that this is what they were called to do. But it was a mystery. The true significance was a mystery until, guess what? The bridegroom came and died on the cross. When he stepped out of heaven... What did he do? He left his heavenly father and the form of a man came and was born by a virgin. He grew up, lived a perfect life. And what did he do? He clung. He held. He held fast. He held tightly. He was glued to his people. And what was it based on? It was based on his grace. It was based on his grace. And they became one unified with each other. Now, there's two defining marks of Christ's covenant with His people that we need to understand. Please understand this. Before we move on, the purpose of your marriage, the God-given purpose of your marriage, the God-given purpose of my marriage, is to make it a picture for the whole world to see what it is like to be in a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. His primary purpose is not about your happiness. His primary purpose is not about your your, your family. It is not about sexual satisfaction. All of these are things that God has added are secondary purposes and even blessings of God. But the primary purpose is for you and I to live with my wife in such a way that when they see our relationship, it is a clear indication and picture of what a relationship is like when somebody enters it into a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ and His church. Do you understand that? Get that before we move on. Because there's two implications of this. Two defining marks of Christ's covenant with his people. First of all, it's unbreakable. Where do we get that? Do you remember the word word cling? They have to cling. Jesus Christ comes, and I want to let you know whether you know this or not. Those who will be saved were chosen before the foundations of the earth, Ephesians 1. He has called them. They will be saved. There are none that God has called that will not be saved. God will save every single last one. And when God saves you, it's all a work of God. It's all a work of God. What did you do? Well, I had to. No, you didn't. You did nothing. It was all a work of God. He saved you. And here's the deal. Because He saved you, He keeps you. He saves you. He keeps you. Now, notice this. That's why He says, nobody can rip you from the hand of my Father. You understand that? Why? Because he's doing what? What's he doing, church? He's gripping. He's holding. He said, well, I believe you could lose your salvation. Then you would. You can't cling to him that tight. He clings to you. He's clinging to you. And man, that's a lot safer than me clinging to him. There will be times that we fall away. There will be times that that we backslide every moment of every day. Or at the same exact time, he just not—it's unbreakable. That's why when Jesus speaking of marriage, will later say this. He will ultimately—he will ultimately say in Mark, in Mark chapter ten, verse eight through nine, "What therefore God has put together, let not man separate. Let not man separate." So there we see in the idea of clinging that it's unbreakable. But notice this, because this is where I have a lot of people. A lot of people are sitting back, going, "Well, man, we got this." I grew up Southern Baptist. I don't believe in divorce. I know it's wrong. So I'm glad to know and feel pretty good. But even though our relationship right now is horrible, and I hate her, and she hates me, can't stand being in the same room with each other. At least we're covenant-keeping, brother. At least we're doing what the Bible had intended. You're fooling yourself, man. Because the only one half of the covenant equation... The first half is that it is unbreakable. The second half is that it's grace-saturated. When he says the two shall become one, the only way to do that is for God through his death, burial, and resurrection to give us something that we sinners, vile, wicked, disgusting, you perverted, sick-minded, putrid killers and myself and that bunch. See, you and I have forgot how sinful we are. And God just sat there and said, I'm going to choose you, not because of anything good in you, but because I'm good. But here's the deal. It's not only in his choosing. It's also in his keeping. Because I got to let you know, I have come a long way, but I'm nowhere close to being righteous on my own works. Only through Jesus Christ and him alone. But yet every day that I fail, his grace abounds all the more, and so if some of you in your relationship, hey, you're doing great. Hats off the fact that you that that, you, that that you're covenant bearing and the fact that you haven't divorced. Hey, that's great, but I don't think it illustrates the gospel for you teach, treating each other like garbage. He says, "How do you treat? Not based on what each other deserves, but based on what you don't deserve." So get this. Every day of every hour, you are portraying to a lost and dying world what it means for an unbreakable relationship and to demonstrate perpetual, continual grace to a person that does not deserve it. Now, let me ask you, how's that purpose working for you? How's that live? Oh, we have a great marriage. We've been married for 99 years, it's wonderful. You still don't need to treat each other with the grace that you deserve or that you don't deserve. And so this is what the Word of God teaches us in this. And what we're going to do for the next three weeks is we're going to unpack that idea. We're going to unpack this idea of, okay, if this is really God's purpose, then what does that look like? What are the principles? What are the problems? What are the practices that we should, we should live out? And we're going to go over that for the next three weeks. But here's the deal. Unless you get this truth, nothing else is going to help you. And the only way that you're going to get this truth is if you repent of your wicked, sinful heart. That's it. To repent. To turn. And for us to say, God, all this time, even if I didn't specifically say that this is the reason and the purpose that I thought marriage was, these are the things that I've been elevating. How do you know that? Listen to what you say to each other. Brother Mike, you don't understand what he does. I refuse to give him this because he does that. We know she still, after 20 years of marriage, still won't. Therefore, I'm not going to. None of that is an illustration of the grace that God has for his church. And it does not belong within the marriage. Because it does not demonstrate the covenant relationship with Christ and his church. So what are we going to have to do? Here's your assignment. Before you begin to ask, how does this truth affect me? Let me stop. Because I know that there are tons of questions that you have. They're swirling. And through this whole thing, you've been saying, I've got a question about this. Can I get a divorce here? What about this divorce here? And what about this marriage? And do I have a way out of this? And what about all the, the, the you know, everybody's told me that there are a couple ways out of marriage. What are these? Let's talk about this. Because you're looking for those. You see that? Before you begin to even apply this, you have to be gripped by it. If you listen to this, and it doesn't grip you, transform you, change you, and radically come and bring you to a submissive will that you say, God, it's your purpose over my purpose, he'll never bring about change. This is what I said first, accept the truth in humility. Come and say to God, God, I've had it wrong. I've missed it somehow. Maybe I knew it, but it's just not a reality in my life. Number two, let it pervade your heart, mind, and soul. Resist the application of it until you understand the beauty of it, the truthfulness of it, the glory of it. The truth is some of us just today even need to repent of what we think about marriage because it is far more glorious than what you and I possibly believe about it. It's the picture of God. It was intended to picture for a lost and dying world of this unbreakable, grace-saturated relationship with His people. And so we've got to come, we've got to come, pray to God to make this truth a reality in your life. Pray to God that you will understand it and receive it. You say, why pray to God? Because apart from Him, you can do nothing. I realize I'm not nearly as dumb as you are, even though they cut my neck and shut the air off to my head. I do know this. I do know that what I preach as far as and I think it's the clearest understanding of the Scriptures, what I've shared with you today. I know that there are a lot of preachers that would reject this teaching. But there's even more congregants, people in the congregation, that will reject this preaching. But you know what I love about this? Is I'm not alone. Jesus, in the book of Matthew, His disciples came to Him and they begin to ask Him this question. And I don't want to get wrapped up in divorce because that's not what this is about. It's about marriage, not divorce. But well, they come to him and they say, hey, listen, there's two thoughts of reasoning. Can a man ever, for what purposes or reasons, can a man divorce his wife? What is it? There were two school of thoughts during that day. And so Jesus is there and he doesn't entertain. He says, hey, listen, this is, you know, what God has put together that nobody separate. And so they turn to him and they say, yeah, but this, has, this wasn't always, you know, how it's been. You remember Abraham. Don't, don't you love our excuses? Yeah, but, 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 but. And Jesus is dealing with this. He says, don't you know that Abraham allowed them to write a certificate of divorce because of the wickedness of their heart? Okay, he's asking Jesus, does he know what Abraham or Moses gave them, right? Okay, it's Jesus. I think Jesus knows what Moses intended, right? And so Jesus turns and he ultimately says this. They say to them, when he gets done explaining his view of what marriage is, the mystery of marriage, this is their response. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. He says, if what you're seeing, Jesus, is truly the purpose of marriage and the picture of marriage, that truly what our relationship is to be is to be unbreakable and based on grace, it would be better for me never to have gotten married. See, what they were doing is this. What God said the purpose was, follow me, to marriage, did not line up in the categories of what the disciples believed were the purposes of marriage. That's why it was wicked. That's why they couldn't receive it. That's why they rejected it. And so this is what Jesus says. Here's the answer. Because I believe that's going on right now. No matter where you are in your walk in this marriage, you're sitting there going, I just don't believe that. I don't believe that's the primary reason. And you're fighting it. Because the truth is not, God's truth is not not in your categories of the purposes of marriage. So here's my only hope. Here's my hope. This is what Jesus said. Not everyone can receive the same, but only those to whom it is given. I know that not everybody is going to preach this truth and share this truth and accept this truth. But I do know this, that if you're going to accept it, it's only going to be by the revelation of the Holy Spirit to your heart who quickens your heart, softens your heart, and shows you that this is the truth of the Word of God. And the only way to do that is to be honest this morning and to be open to repent of sin and to turn from that sin. Let me say something before I close, and I don't want this to be the last thing that you understand. I know that even expressing this, especially the unbreakable part, there are a lot of people that are dealing with things, and you are saturated with guilt and shame because of your divorce or because of whatever it was that happened in your past. Listen, understand what we're saying. The marriage relationship is at the same time is based on the grace of Jesus Christ, getting what you do not deserve. Do you understand that if you repent of that, God forgives you? And you're not a second-class citizen. If you repentant of God, He's forgiven you of your sin, just like when I lost my temper yesterday. He forgives me of that sin. He restores us. He gives us a new future. He puts us back together. That's the grace of God. You didn't deserve it, but He gave it to you anyway. He saturates you with grace. So I don't want you to leave here in this place being all down and go, man, I'm a complete failure in all this and everything. God's grace is sufficient for you. But what I want you to understand is at the conclusion of this, is I want you to understand that if you don't accept this, this truth, that this is the purpose that God had intended, which is very clear in the scriptures to me, then you will not be able to receive what's going to be said from here on out. Hey, you may be hanging in there. It may be unbreakable. But grace may be the furthest thing from your mind. If you're going to demonstrate God's covenant relationship, it's not only unbreakable, but it's also saturated with grace. Let's pray.